Well, amen, and good morning once again. For those of you joining us today, uh, maybe after a uh, time away, or maybe for your first time in a long time, we work our way, generally speaking, through books of the Bible at North Roanoke. We believe God authored a book, and He put it in order, and it's wisest to study it in the way that God delivered it. And in the summertime, we often take a break from a regular book of the Bible, not that the Psalms isn't a regular book, but it's assembled a bit differently, and we, we dive into the Psalms and just work through them sequentially. And so we find ourselves, this is the second summer that we've endeavored to do this, and we find ourselves this morning in Psalm chapter 17, and, and I've titled this Psalm, Praying Under Pressure, Praying Under Pressure. Has anybody ever had to deal with pressure in your life? Anybody ever felt adversity, ever felt hardship, felt like you were under attack? If, if you've ever sensed that in your walk with Christ, I think Psalm 17, really many of the psalms that we've already covered could, could bear the same title. But this morning I want to take an angle on this psalm of, of how is it that we pray when we are faced with adversity, opposition, attack in our walk with Christ. So if you would, would you... Hear now the word of God, Psalm chapter 17. A prayer of David. Hear a just cause, O Lord. Give heed to my cry. Give ear to my prayer, which is not from deceitful lips. Let my judgment come forth from your presence. Let your eyes look with equity. You have tried my heart. You have visited me by night. And you have tested me. And you find nothing. I have purposed that my mouth will not transgress. As for the deeds of men, by the word of your lips, I have kept from the paths of the violent. My steps have held fast to your paths. My feet have not slipped. I have called upon you, for you will answer me, O God. Incline your ear to me. Hear my speech. Wondrously show your loving kindness, O Savior of those who take refuge at your right hand. From those who rise up against them, keep me as the apple of your eye, hide me in the shadow of your wings from the wicked who despoil me, my deadly enemies who surround me, they have closed their unfeeling heart, with their mouth they speak proudly. They have now surrounded us in our steps, they set their eyes to cast us down to the ground. He is like a lion that is eager to tear, and as a young lion lurking in hiding places. Arise, O Lord, confront him. Bring him low. Deliver my soul from the wicked with your sword, from men with your hand, O Lord, from men of the world whose portion is in this life and whose belly you fill with your treasure. They are satisfied with children and leave their abundance to their babes. As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. I will be satisfied with your likeness when I awake. Would you join me in praying? God, that's a, a packed psalm to consider in a relatively short amount of time. I pray, God, that in the moments to come that you would give us understanding, that you would allow us to be challenged and encouraged in the inner part of our being, God, that we would hear from heaven. And Lord, whatever we are facing that would seek to take us away from the life that is found only in you, God, that we would know how to pray in such a way that we are crying out to you, and you are hearing our prayer, and you are moving 
on behalf of your children. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning, as we consider praying under pressure, I want to note first that the psalm is, in fact, a prayer. It's labeled a prayer of David. It's not just of David. It's not a song of David. It's a prayer of David. This is the first of five psalms labeled a prayer specifically in the book of the Psalms. Chapter 17 and then verse 86, verse chapter 90, chapter 102, and chapter 142. They are all specifically called prayers. Now what's interesting about this word prayer, it's, it's not used that frequently, this particular Hebrew term, in the Hebrew Bible. This type of praying is really captured by the words that we find in verse 1. Three times in verse 1, David cries out to God. He, he calls upon the Lord to hear him, which means to listen attentively. Hey God, I, I've, I've got something on my heart that's waiting. Please hear me attentively and to heed him and then to give ear to him, which is in the intense, like, listen up, God, hear what I've got to say. So David's prayer is, is urgent and it's passionate because it is a prayer that emerges in the context of pressure. Pressure that comes when enemies want to rob us of life in God. So the psalm, interestingly enough, and it's hard to see in our English translation, but many of David's psalms flow very nicely. They've got a, a nice meter and cadence to them, but this psalm is not quite like that. It's, it's more punchy. Uh, Kyle and Delich say this, the more vehement and less orderly flow of the language is the result of the inward tumult of his feelings. Have you ever been there? Your world's turned upside down. You're wrestling against whatever it is. You feel like you just can't get your feet on the ground and live for Jesus. And he just bursts into prayer. The words just come out. So this is not a, it's not a rote prayer, a routine prayer, or, or a rehearsed prayer. Now, there are times when that's okay, right? But in this moment, this context of pressure, God's not looking for him to have you know, equal rhyme and meter and for it to, to all work just perfectly. It just comes rushing out of his soul. And when you get in those seasons of adversity, God's not looking for a, a perfect prayer. He's looking for a heart that's just flowing and desperate for union and presence with God. David's prayer is a prayer that's offered from a soul oppressed by deadly enemies, mentioned in verse 9. They have an unfeeling heart, verse 10, and they have an intent to kill, verse 11 and 12. Now you might be thinking, I, I get David's desperation. I mean, King Saul was always trying to kill him. Think about 1 Samuel 23. Saul is surrounding David's men. The people of Israel are ratting out his location, and it seems like he's doomed that very well might be the occasion for this psalm, we're not sure. But, but we face a similar adversity, adversity in our Christian walk. If you follow Jesus, you're going to be attacked. If you're on mission with Christ, you're going to face adversity in your life. You're going to face thoughts that come into your mind that want to undermine your walk with Christ. And we are mistaken if we go to the Psalms and think, well, that's just about David. It has no relevance for my life. Because just as David was in a fight daily for his life because God had called him to be king, you're in a fight daily for your life because Christ has called you to follow him on the king's mission. The stakes in your life are every bit as high as they were for King David. Satan would like nothing more than to overtake your life. And this is how that happens. First, he'll 
lets you become complacent in your walk with Christ. And then after a season of complacency and not too many problems, you'll become self-sufficient and think you don't really need to spend that time with God. You don't really need to be involved in a Bible study group. You don't really need to be around brothers and sisters in Christ. And then Satan goes in for the kill. After a long season of forgetting God and everything seeming okay, like God somehow isn't necessary in our lives, and bam, a job loss, a new boss, a career diagnosis, and we are faced with pressure. Is this life the, what we can make of it in the here and now, or is there someone far greater than this world could ever offer upon whom we must depend for life and for godliness and purpose and significance? You see, Satan would take great delight in peeling any one of us away from dependence upon and desperation for Christ our King. He'd love to rip you away from that. And Psalm 17 shows us when you, when you sense in your life that pressure to, to walk away from the faith, to, to lay it down and, and ignore it, how we should pray. So first, as we face adversity and persecution for following the Lord, we must cry out to the Lord in integrity. We see that in verses 1-6. through six. Secondly, we must ask God to demonstrate His miraculous and life-giving faithfulness, love, and protection. Those are, those are three different terms, but really just the care of God in the life of His children toward us. And then thirdly, we must recognize our true enemy and pursue our true reward. First, we've got to pray in integrity. When we encounter challenging times in life, what do we often ask? Why? Why is this happening, God? Why me? Why are you allowing this to happen? Perhaps we see this human tendency most naturally in sports. When teams lose two games in a row, you can guarantee somebody's going to ask, why? When a college football team that had been doing well suddenly goes into the tank, you can guarantee that fans and coaches and administrators are going to ask, why? But sometimes in a fallen world, there just aren't good explanations. There are no quick, tidy answers to the difficulties that come in a broken world. We want to answer right away to everything, but why did UVA outplay Virginia Tech last year on the football field, but fumble away their victory and give those annoying Hokie fans one more year to gloat? There's not a good answer to that question. These are questions that in this lifetime, at least, are not easily answered. And if we could say that in the world of sports, how much more can we say that in a world that's been broken by sin and yearns for its Creator? You see, this is important to keep in mind in matters far more important than sports. God, why have we experienced so much death or sickness or adversity or financial setback in our family? God, why does my husband or my wife or my boss overlook everything that I contribute and only see my mistakes? God, are you, are you punishing me? Are you against me? Do you love me? When adversity comes to your life, and it comes, and it comes, and it comes, even as you're endeavoring to live for Christ, it does not mean that God is absent. It does not mean that He's lost interest in you. It does not mean that God is punishing you. Now let's be clear, sin has consequences. 
If you live in a financially irresponsible way in your 30s, it can plague you into old age. A promiscuous life in your teens can distort your view of God's design for intimacy between a husband and a wife and can impact your marriage for decades. These are natural consequences of sin, however, that can be addressed and attacked and worked through in the power of the gospel. Your past sin does not have to determine your view of God's love for you right now. Your past sin does not have to determine your destiny. Your past does not have to be the prologue of your story. Because of the cross of Calvary, in which Christ bore your sin and died, that it could be buried and cast as far as east from west, and that he could be raised, and in trusting Christ, you get resurrection power to work through and wrestle through, yes, the sins of your past and their consequences, but not to think, well, God doesn't love me. Of course He loves you. He's loved you supremely in Christ. Now, if you can sin and it doesn't bother you, that's a problem. But because you sinned 30 years ago, God's not still out there like, well, I remember what you did 30 years ago. So here comes some cancer for your life. That's not God. If you're a child of God rescued by the sacrifice of Jesus for you, God is not angrily punishing you for your past sins that you've long since confessed of and repented of. Paul says in Romans 8.1, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God is not striking you with cancer, marital discord, miscarriages, death, and sadness to get back at you for what you did one time a long time ago. Or even what you did a thousand times a long time ago. God's vengeance against your sin has already come down on His Son, and there is no double jeopardy with God. If you belong to Christ, God is your heavenly Father, and He loves you more than you could ever know, or comprehend, or repay. We must not let the pressures of life and living for God in a world that is hostile to Him and to those who follow Him lead us to have a pity party. Or to abandon our faith. Sometimes when adversity comes, we're like, well, God must not be there. or He must not love me, and so I'm going to quit. Adversity is not a reason to quit. It's a reason to run to God. We must run to the Lord where we find fullness of joys and pleasures forevermore in His right hand. And this is exactly what David does in this situation. He's not like, he doesn't throw up his hands and say, where's God? He runs to God. In verses 1-6, through the first thing that David does is he establishes that he has a confidence that the Lord will hear his cry. That word cry in verse 1 is like a ringing shout out to God. He believes that the just or the right is on his side because he is functioning in integrity. Look at the second line of verse 1. His lips have been free from deceit. He hasn't spoken lies about his enemy. He's relied on God. He is resolved that his mouth will not transgress or cross over God's line. God has a standard. It's outlined in the Ten Commandments. And David refuses to cross it. Verses 4 and 5 show us that David is held to the path of trust in the Lord rather than taking matters into his own hands and being violent with his enemies. Now look at the beginning of verse 2. David does not just defend himself. And say, God, you know, I'm, you know I've got integrity and therefore you need to hear my prayer. He goes a step further. He says, God, why don't you just examine me? 
Why don't you just take a look at my life? He says, God, you judge me. You render your verdict. Your eyes will see things with equity. You see that in verse 2? Meaning that God judges from a level place. Now, in this world, people judge through all sorts of lenses. But what David is saying is, God, your lenses are always fair. They're always right. They're always just. You're not going to favor me one way or the other. You're going to evaluate the facts as they are. God, you know all the angles, the insides, the what-ifs, and the wherefores. And I stand before you in integrity and say, God, judge and know my heart. And look at his conclusion in verse 3. God tries his heart. He visits him even at nighttime, and he tests him. And what does God find at the end of verse 3? Nothing. The words tried and tested are both words used for the refining process in pure metals. We, uh, We have a lot of trees at the Palmer household, and they make a lot of debris. And last night I had a pile of debris and I set it on fire and we made some s'mores. And I didn't know it at the time, but it turns out it was National S'mores Day yesterday. So I celebrated appropriately. But you know, in the, in the backyard with all the debris that's constantly falling, about once a week I could have a, have a little fire if I wanted to. But I have other things to do. But I was sitting there thinking last night, if I wanted to have a perfectly maintained backyard, then I would need to constantly be picking up the debris and throwing it in the fire. And what David is saying is, God, you sift me, you test me, you examine me, and when you look at my heart, all that is there is is pure, it's unspoiled, it is holy. David's heart is pure before a pure God. David says, even when you showed up in the middle of the night to examine me, even then, you didn't find anything. And because David conducts himself in integrity, he has confidence that God hears his prayer. Let me be clear, church. There's a connection between the holiness of the believer and the receptivity of God to the prayer. There's a connection between the holiness of the believer and the receptivity of God to the prayer. There's a connection between the purity of our hearts And God's hearing of our prayers. We find this throughout Scripture. Proverbs 15.29 The Lord is far from the wicked, but He hears the prayers of the righteous. Isaiah 59.2 Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden His face from you so that He does not hear. So let me ask you a question. What if this morning you've got sin in your heart? What if you've got sin in your life that's destroying and eating away from that connection that you feel with God? Guess what? We all have a sin problem. Psalm 143.2 says, No one living is righteous before you. But I thought David just said he was righteous before God. So how in the world does David say, I'm righteous before you, but he's not righteous before him? And the answer is, by faith in what God was going to accomplish one day through a son of David and the son of God. How in the world does David say he is just? His hope is not ultimately in himself, but in the one who fulfills this psalm perfectly. You see, church, Jesus is the one who faced the ultimate test when his enemies surrounded him in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus is the one who, even when he was nailed to a cross, he did not sin. Jesus is the one where we have sinned, he offers to save. 
Jesus is the King greater than David who perfectly fulfills verses 1-6. through And if you don't know Him, and if God feels distant or like He's not there, and He's always felt that way, you've never known the nearness of God, then today might be the day that you need to stop being having integrity in your own life apart from Christ and surrender your life to Christ and have His righteousness and access opened up amazing into the throne room of the presence of God where the Father hears the prayers of His children. Jesus fulfills 1 through 6 so that your sin can be removed and you can know and commune with the Lord God Almighty. Not based on your perfection, but on Christ. And if this is true, then out of gratitude for what Christ has done in your life, then you will endeavor to live a holy life. You will endeavor to live according to God's standards. You won't settle for a surface level faith. You're going to want to be around the people of God, with the people of God, worshiping God Himself who made a way for you to commune with Him. If you've sinned this morning, if there's a sin, a pattern of sin that is in your life that is standing between you and true life and communion with God, then the way you would begin this morning is in confession. You would run to Jesus and say, God, here's where I've failed. Here's where I've stumbled. Please forgive me and make me new from the inside out so that I can know Your presence. And then when you know His presence afresh this morning, you'll do number two. You will ask God to wondrously show His life-giving faithfulness, love, and protection. After David establishes in the first six verses that he's got a connection to God because he's clean before God, he He commands God. It's a a command. He says, God, wondrously show your loving kindness. This word, wondrously show, is connected to the word that's used over in Genesis chapter 18, verse 14. You remember when Sarah was a bit up in years, and God said, you're going to have a son, and she laughed? Yeah, right. Nine months later, she's got a boy named Isaac, whose name means laughter. Do you remember what God said after she laughed? He said, is anything too difficult for the Lord? The word difficult there is actually the word wonderful. Is there anything so wonderful, so amazing, so transforming in the middle of your adversity that God can't do it? Is there anything that wants to rob you of the joy of walking for Christ that He can't overturn? Is there any sin that you're trapped in? Any lust that you're trapped in any desire, any pattern, any temptation that God can't wondrously show His miracle working power in your life? No. So first establish, you want to be clean before God and then run into the presence of God and say, God, show up in my life. What I am facing is impossible, but God, I'm calling on you to bring the wonderful out of the impossible. God, I'm asking this of you because you're wonderful. God, I want to see a wonderful deliverance in my life. I want you to heal my broken heart. I want you to give real life to my body and take my mind off of living for stuff and to, again, start living for you. God, I want you to give real life to my aching body. I want you to lift the clouds of depression that have been saturating my soul. God, I want you to help me to see people. I want you to help people to see my love for them and help me to love for them in a way that they know it's your love flowing through me. And if I lack any of these things, work wondrously in my life. And do it, get this, as a demonstration of your character, your loving kindness. Wondrously show them. What? Your loving kindness. 
Loving kindness is a part of the name of God, the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth is His name, Exodus 34.6. Loving kindness is the word often translated mercy. It refers to God's covenant faithfulness, His unwavering loving devotion to those who belong to Him by faith. This thought continues in verse 8. He says, God, keep me or guard me as the apple of your eye or the little man of your eye. This is, a, this is a metaphor. You know, when you get really close to someone and you stare into their eyes, you can actually see a reflection of yourself in their pupil. That's the picture of what's going on. God, look at me so intently, so carefully, so closely. It's like when I, when I look at Samuel or I look at Elizabeth and I, and I look into their eye and I see a reflection of myself there and I know... It's, a, it's amazing that God has given me these two children as a gift. And it's, David is saying, look, look at me like that. Look at me so closely that you see you and me. And wondrously show your covenant faithfulness to me as your child. Because I'm yours, God. And what you do to your children and for your children matters because the world sees it. Prove your loving kindness in my life. Because I have cried out in faith and I belong to you by faith in Christ. Because of this relationship, do y'all ever think you're just asking for God for too much? Or He's too busy? Or He just doesn't have time for that? No! In Christ, you're the apple of His eye. He's got time to look on you. He's listening. Take up and cry out to God and pray and let Him know. I mean, He knows. But He loves to hear from His children. And and David continues, Hide me in the shadow of your wings. This is a plea, church, for the, the protection of God in the face of the enemy. Satan wants nothing more than to rob you of your life in Christ. And David says, God, even through death, keep me in your presence. God's wings are the spreading out or the manifestations of His love like a mother hen taking her chicks under her wing. And the shadow is the refreshing rest of God. It's deliverance from the scorching heat of the sun. It's deliverance from the heat of the enemy. And it is security in the fellowship of the love of God which gives to us protection because we hide under His care. God, keep me. Keep me in the love and the protection that are found only in your presence, even while the wicked are circling about and seek to despoil me. Verse 9. You know what that means? It means they want to kill me. They want to take me out. They want to take me down. They'd rather have one less person living for Jesus in this world and they'd just rather take me out. God, even though they want to kill me, even though they want to knock me off course, even though they make me want to walk in the way of the wicked rather than in the path of the righteous, God, keep me in your care. Now, I don't know about you, but that sounds a lot like Jesus. And if it sounds a lot like Jesus to you walking to the cross, it should. Because ultimately, this psalm is about Jesus before it's about David. It's a prediction that even a humiliating death would not stop the Father's love from for His Son, who would raise Him up to life everlasting, even through death. And that, my friends, is good news. That is really good news. 
Even if it should look like in your life that the enemies have won, even if they would take your mortal life, they can't defeat you if you are in Christ because God has already answered this psalm. He's already proven and shown His loving kindness and He did it when He sent His own Son who was surrounded by enemies who were taunting Him and spitting on Him and flogging Him and calling for His death and then they crucified Him. But on the third day, what a wondrous display of the loving kindness of God who raised His Son from the dead. And God's promise to you as the apple of His eye is as sure to you as it was to Christ as Christ looked on Calvary's hill. Even death cannot defeat those who take refuge in the Lord. Did you know even as Jesus neared the shadow of the cross that He was still under the shadow of His Father's wing, protected even through death. Whatever enemy you face this morning, stop letting it rob you of the joy of living for God. Whatever enemy is attacking you this morning, cry out to God. And if you've given in for a season, confess your sin, be clean before God, and run into His presence and say, God, deliver me. Give me victory. Wondrously prove your character in this situation. Cry out to the God who loves you and has infinitely more power than whatever is set against you and rest in His care with confidence knowing that His deliverance will surely come even if it has to come in the resurrection. In despair and discouragement and doubt, God gives deliverance and restoration. In death, He gives resurrection. And finally, if we're going to pray in this way under pressure, we've got to pray with integrity which might mean we need to confess some sin. If you've been praying for years and years and years and feel like your prayers never get beyond the ceiling, it might be that there's something you need to deal with in your life. But then once you've dealt with it, you can boldly, confidently call on God to wondrously show His loving kindness in your life. And then finally, you've got to understand your enemy and pursue your true reward. Some of you struggle with your prayer life because you haven't yet decided where your real reward is. Your prayer life is mostly going to the God of the universe, which is the reward to know the presence of God, and then asking for all the treats that everybody else in the world has. God, just fill my bank account, give me stuff. In verse 9, we saw that David's enemies are surrounding him and seeking his death. In verse 10, we learn that the enemies have unfeeling hearts. I love this. That, that That word, unfeeling hearts, is literally, they shut up their fat. What in the world does that mean? It means that their hearts are are heartless. They're callous. They're fatty tissue. They're incapable of feeling anything. And so they closed up their fat. They closed up their hard hearts toward David and toward Christ. And the world will close up its heart toward you as well. And one of the challenges we have, church, is that we expect people who don't yet know Christ to act like Christians. Well, I can't believe the way he waved at me with one finger that happened to be in the middle of his hand. Why why do they just take away my Sundays at work? Why don't they care about my faith? Why do they keep raising taxes and forcing us to choose between paying the bills and parenting our children? Church, the world is heartless. If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him... 1 John 3.17, how does God's love abide in Him? If you're looking for love from the world, you're looking in the wrong place. 
If you're looking for acceptance in the world, you're looking in the wrong place. You can't expect a the world to give you the love that your heart yearns for. A new car, a new girlfriend, a new job will not give you true life. I've even heard Christians say this about their daughters or their sons. Man, he just needs to find a good woman. And then his life will get straight. Oh, she just needs to find a good man. And then her life will get straight. Malarkey! Until they... Rest in and commune with a holy God. Don't think the orders, don't think flipping that priority is going to suddenly improve their life. It's God and knowing the presence of God that changes lives. Do you notice verse 14? David is trusting God to deliver him from the wicked with his own hand. And one of the ways that he does that is by giving the wicked what they desire. Now, this is scary, church. And it's particularly scary in the context of American Christianity. Where we think, well, the guy who has the three-car garage with sports cars in every bay, and his wife is beautiful, and they've never had a problem, that that means they're blessed by God. But verse 14 says that God sometimes will give the wicked exactly what they want because they've rejected Him. Because they won't receive Him as their reward. He'll let them have their fill with every other lesser reward. And as Jesus says in the Gospels, when their time comes, they've had their reward and that's all they get. And God pity their soul. They never see their need for the one that they mock and they kill and they persecute. Because of what they have, they don't see what they don't have. And if what you have is preventing you from having the one who is the source of all blessing and pleasure forevermore, then let me tell you, it's worth the trade. It's worth selling all you have to go buy the field for the treasure of knowing Christ and His kingdom. We cannot look at the success of the wicked and be bitter or envious or jealous, thinking that they have life. No! Psalm 17, 14 is clearly showing us that one of the ways that God judges wicked people is to let them have their best life now. We may find our rest in God rather than those things that will leave us forever restless on Judgment Day. And we do that in Christ. The righteous are those who are willing to lose even their lives as long as they can have God. Our enemies will put our faithfulness to the test, won't they? They will test you. They will challenge you. They will confront you because they don't know the love of God. They don't know the joy that is found in belonging to God. They only know the love of self, which is why they speak arrogantly or majestically, verse 10. God is not majestic in their life. They are majestic in their own life. Your enemies will tell you that they're going to defeat you. That your only hope is to give up, to deny your allegiance to the Lord as they surround you. Verse 11, do you see that? They're encircling. It feels like the pressure is intensifying. Now what's interesting to me is in verse 11, David goes from talking about himself to talking about us. Do you see that? It's been me, 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 me. And then verse 11, they surround us. What's going on here? Well, Saul didn't just surround David. He surrounded David's men. The Roman army didn't just surround Jesus, they surrounded Jesus and His disciples. And if you follow a king who was persecuted by the world, who went to a cross to save you, guess what? You're going to be surrounded too. 
You see, they don't want it. The enemies of Christ don't want to just take out Christ. They want to take out His people. The enemies of David didn't just want to take out David. They want to take out anybody who had an allegiance to David. They don't want just Jesus. They want to take out His church. And now, look at what happens in verse 12. This is so interesting. Verse 11, the enemy becomes plural. Because we are united with Christ in His battle. But then the enemy in verse 12 becomes singular. It's been enemies, 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 and I don't know what your enemy is this morning. You can probably think about stuff, stress, anxiety, depression, career, uh, possessions. I want possessions more than I want Jesus. I, I don't know what your enemy is, but look at this. In verse 12, the enemy becomes singular. So in verse 9, 10, and 11, the enemies are plural, but now in verse 12, it's singular. He, singular, is like a lion that is eager to tear, and is a young lion lurking in hiding places. Does that sound familiar to you? Does that not sound like 1 Peter 5, 8? Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Who entered into Judas and caused him to betray Jesus? Was it not Satan? You see, Satan was using Judas to portray Christ and get him to the cross, and Satan is still at work using the wicked ways of our enemies to attack us and to cause us to abandon hope in God and to trade it in for the temporary pleasures of this world. You don't really have to deny yourself in order to delight in God. You don't really need to take up your cross. You don't really need to be serious about your church or your Sunday school or your prayer life. You can just go halfway. That's what Satan will tell you. Because he wants to rob you of the joy of being vitally connected with a God who loves you. Don't underestimate who your enemy is. Satan is on the prowl. And he wants to take you out. But aren't you glad that we can resist the devil and his lies? James 4, 7. And he must flee. How do we do this? How do we resist the enemy that is all around and circling us? We've got to live for a reward that is infinitely greater than that which the world offers. The wicked have their eyes on today's prizes, but the righteous prize the cross of Christ in communion with God. Look at verse 15. Beautiful words, as for me. Do you see that? David says, as for me me. Look, the wicked can be satisfied with children, they can be satisfied with houses and cars and 401ks, but as for me. Can you say with David this morning, as for me? As for me, I will behold your face. That's what I'm aiming at. In righteousness, I will be satisfied with your likeness when I awake. The road might be long. It might be hard. It will certainly be less traveled. But it ends in a better world when we awake in the resurrection and behold the face of our Savior, Redeemer, and Lord. I don't know how the Sadducees missed Psalm 17, by the way, because the awaking and seeing the face of God is a resurrection. He talks about his enemies killing him in verses 10 and 11 and 12. And then in verse 15, he's saying, one day I'm going to awaken your presence. So the promise to those of you this morning who are under pressure and adversity for your faith is you will face pressure. You will be reviled and maligned and attacked and misunderstood. But look at what Jesus says. 
in Matthew 5. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice! Be glad! Your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. For so they persecuted Christ. And one day you will see His face and He'll say, Well done, my good and faithful servant. When you face the pressure to cave in your Christian walk, cry out to God in integrity, Ask Him to work wondrously. And then remember that what the world offers and even what it threatens to do to you is nothing. It is nothing compared to a life of of beholding the eternal glory of the face of Christ Jesus, our King. North Roanoke Baptist Church, that is how you pray under pressure.